welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a rating and subscribe to hear our next episode. Today's the first episode of my Four Badass Black Women series. My guest today is Libra Ford, executive at a nonprofit that serves black families, activist, speaker, and former pro basketball player. Libra grew up in Harlem as an only child, but now she loves rural living with her three superpower daughters. Hello, Libra. How are you doing? I'm golden. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I love your name because I am a Libra. Uh, How did you get that name? How did your parents think of that? There's a story behind that. Yeah. My mom is big into astrology. She always has been. My father wanted my name to be Ida. That was the woman that raised him. He did not show up to the delivery room. And so she got to pick the name and she picked Libra. And the reason why she picked Libra is one, in astrology, it means balance. And she said that when she got pregnant with me, it brought balance to her life. And two, she worked for an old artist from the 60s, Peter Mac. And his daughter's name was Libra. And she loved it. And so between those three things, here I am, Libra. Nice. Are you are you born in October? I'm born in September. I was a little early, so I'm actually Virgo. But my kids are Libras. I got two Libras and one on Sagittarius. That's a good month to have your birthday. Tell me how you were quarantining. How's COVID-19 affected you? <laughs> I'm lucky. I've got great children. I have three daughters. Two are here with me. One is in college, so she got her own place during COVID. First time, actually, which is kind of cool. My other two kids are just great kids. So we're kind of COVIDing with great people. It's an amazing thing, right? I work from home. All my work has not stopped. It's actually gotten really busy. But having them here and they're great human beings has just been wonderful. So I'm not complaining. That's great. I have three sons, the opposite of you. And one of them is living in an apartment with his uh, fiance. And the other two, I'm the same with you. They're great kids. So I've been lucky. The hardest thing is negotiating, you know, when can they go see friends? My 17-year-old has been out of the protests, you know, after we were not letting him go anywhere, then we started letting him to go out there. And he yeah. hasn't gotten COVID yet. Actually, so, you're doing those kids. I, you know, I've been a couple of times and they're super smart. I mean, they are. Killing it. They're killing it being safe and yes. they're all over it. Super proud of them. Yes, I'm really proud of them too. Kind of freaky what's happening. So can you share yeah. with our listeners about your life? Where did you grow up? Where do you live now? So I grew up in New York City, Harlem, New York, born and raised, and then have moved all over the place. Been all over the country, a little overseas. I moved to Hawaii for many Many years and raised my children mostly there. But education there is a little challenging. And I worked for an education company at the time. Oregon was one of my regions, and I decided to come here to finish their education. That's how I winded up here, thought it was temporary, and then got recruited by a new company. And so now we've kind of been digging our heels in and making it work. This will be our sixth year. Really? And where in Oregon, I know you live in Clackamas County. Where in Clackamas County do you live? I live in Damascus, which is technically a disincorporated city. So we're really happy valley. And how did you end up there, of all places? (laughs) I know of all places as a black woman, if nobody knows, is not necessarily a considered a diverse city. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So I, you know, growing up, 
Raising children in Hawaii, it's a beautiful place. Physically, the people are beautiful. It's all about aloha. When I was coming back and forth to Oregon, I was really looking for a beautiful place to bring them to and also a good school district because that was my thing. And so I fell upon the North Clackamas School District as well as Damascus, Happy Valley seemed to mimic the look that we were living in. And so from the purest place in my heart, that's why I was chosen. And then once we moved in, I suddenly looked around and was like, oh. You had noticed that there weren't very many Black people there? We're the only. We're the only. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Oh, my God. Wow. Okay, well, here we go. <laughs> But I'm excited that we moved here like that because I think uh -huh. it gave my kids a real window of what I want them to feel, which is the freedom to move and uh -huh. eat whatever you want. And so from that standpoint, I'm excited that we did that. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's definitely a struggle. But that moment of pure, we moved here because it's beautiful and it's a great school district is exciting because that's not something that we normally get to do. My parents both grew up in Clackamas County. My dad was raised in Oregon City and my mom's from Jennings Lodge in Milwaukee. So I have a lot of relatives out there. I've never lived out there. It doesn't seem to fit my personality. <laughs> I'm a Portlander. I yeah, I mean, I grew up in Beaverton, which is also, you know, a different type of personality, but I really like living in the city. <laughs> Yeah. But it's good. I mean, you know, the rural areas need people like you. Yeah. you know? yeah. And coming from New York City, it, the more I moved, the more I realized I love rural living. I lived in Vermont for years. I lived in Arizona, like in remote places in these places. I never moved to another city after I lived. Like, Interesting. Wow. Um, and, the, and the deeper I went into the rural, the more I was in love with it. Like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> no one's touching me. Oh, my God. I love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gosh, isn't that fascinating? So how did you get professionally? How did you get to this place in your life? Tell listeners about your career path. You were a pro athlete. Is that right? I was. Well, yeah. What did you play? I played basketball. Basketball? Um, yeah. I'm 6'5", so people uh -huh. can't see that through a screen normally. Yes. And then they eat me and they're like, holy cow, didn't know you were so tall. Well, I'm... I'm five foot, so if we stop next to each other, I'm really short. So my Facebook name should be B Short Marie. <laughs> yeah. Instead of Utah uh, Libra. I played basketball, high school, college, and played uh, professionally overseas. But I came back to the States because it just wasn't feeding my soul anymore. So I, I started working with children. When I first came back, I lived in Vermont, and I was staying at a place where the woman that I was staying with, she adopted kids for a living. I had done over 400 in her life. And at that moment, I was thrown into a household with 18 other children. I never experienced that. I'm an only child. So I never experienced a household with all those kids like that. And they were all special needs kids at that. And I just fell in love with them. And I fell in love with advocating for them and all the things that came with, with all these children living in Vermont, which by the way, there were all types of races of these 18 kids. And so we were in the middle of Vermont, rural Vermont, which Vermont is very liberal, but um, they were the only in a lot of cases. And so there was opportunity for us to advocate for them a lot. And I just fell in love with it. And I never stopped advocating. 
advocated for kids. From that point on, I've been in education, not as a teacher. I'm more of a business side person of education and advocating for kids and policies and procedures that keep them safe and allow them to be their full selves. You now are the Chief Operating Officer for Self-Enhancement, Inc., right? So can Uh, you tell our listeners who are outside of Portland what Self-Enhancement, Inc. is all about and what you do there? Yeah. uh, Do we have a couple hours? No. (laughs) I know, I know. know. Uh, I'll put the link to the website in the show notes. Perfect. Cool. Self-Enhancement is a multi-service organization located in Portland, Oregon. We do in-school, after-school, and summer school programming for at-risk African-American primarily students. And we started as a basketball camp in the 80s, 81, and then our founder and CEO quickly identified that when kids were leaving, they were leaving to an at-risk home. And so it became a concern of his, and so he tried to figure out how to build a bigger program. And so now we're pretty much in a kid's life 24-7. We're there all day. We have case management model where we monitor kids throughout the day in schools, we're in five school districts. And then after school, we make sure that we expose them to um, experiences and, and options that maybe they've never seen before. And then we do families too. So housing, domestic violence, utility support, anything we need to make that kid be successful, we'll do it for that family until they're 25. The organization has an excellent reputation here in Portland. How is the organization adapting to COVID right now? I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of kids who aren't getting the services they usually get. Yeah, they're not. And we've adjusted fairly quickly we everything that we do in case management we just change to virtual all of our food pantries are still open though so we mm-hmm. do do that every single day because um, food needs and food food insecurity for children is a huge thing i mean mm-hmm. most kids get their meals from school yeah and so when schools closed down we had to beef up some of our food options for our children but we do everything virtually we still are in close contact with all of our families daily and making sure that they're getting the resources that they need and if we need to do something we make sure that we social distance but we have not stopped servicing our families we service over 16,000 every year oh. and we have not stopped it, it's actually been very busy <laughs> uh, maybe busier than ever because they don't get the resources from the school that's as right. much yeah they oh my it. gosh so yeah. we, we yep. oh that's good to know so do you remember when you first learned about race and what your parents taught you about it so yeah <laughs> um, that's probably a stupid question really no, it's, not, it's funny because when people ask me that it's a very different answer for people who are from Oregon because a lot of people especially when I meet people from southern Oregon or very rural parts of Oregon the answer is is well into like their adolescence mm. right where mine is I can honestly think back to five or six you know the first time and it wasn't an experience it was a discussion I had two parents who were um, activists. My father was an actor and he was one of in lots of black exploitation movies. So I was always explained of why that he was in these movies and not those movies. Uh, my mother was a model. She was the first black model for Bob Mackie ever. Um, and I had to be explained why that was the first. And, you know, so this was something that was discussed often. My grandfather was the first black tank in the army in so they, they actually were the tank that found the concentration camps in Germany and actually pulled out bodies from underneath um, bones because they thought they'd be bombed. So they sent the black tank in first. Oh, my gosh. Like my life was built around 
So this is our reality. Just get ready. And here's what we expect from you and nothing less. So it never was like a situation. It was just, this is who you are. And this is how you need to live your life. And how have you taught your children about race? Have you changed the way that you've taught them about race from the way you were taught about it? Well, I think it was changed for them. Hawaii is a brown state. And it was the first time when I lived there, it was the first time that being black was not the issue. It was the opposite. Um, when you go to Hawaii, people that are white are really challenged right. by living there. And so it was a, my first experience ever not being the target. And so I quickly said, oh, I remember calling my family saying, I'm never, never coming back. Like, you guys can forget <laughs> it. I'm never coming back. Like, this is it right here, right? And they were like, uh -huh. and I was like never coming back. So for me, them growing up there was awesome because yeah. they really appreciate their brownness and they found joy in who they were and mm. in a loving environment. And it's Hawaii, like beaches and blue skies. It's just all this joy. But what I realized too, with the education being challenged, I realized when we were moving back to the States, what I hadn't said to them. So I immediately started to have those conversations with them because I realized, oh, it's not like this everywhere. This mm -hmm. is not a microcosm of the world and you guys got to get ready. And I have chocolate babies. They're very brown. And so mm -hmm. they're not going to show up and blend in anywhere. They're mm -hmm. going to stand out. And I wanted them to be confident. What I wasn't ready for was all the love that they got in Hawaii, that foundational love is still who they are. It's really powerful to see that because they didn't, they were not generated or in a world of, of a lot of hate. They were in a world of a lot of love. And so their, their lenses are really focused on that, um, which is really cool to see. There's some truth there for, you know, the best type of parenting as well as the type of environment our children are in. And unfortunately, a lot, a lot of Black children don't get that kind of foundation. Yeah. Where in Hawaii did you live? Ever Beach. So the island of Hawaii, yeah. Yeah, on the dry side, I, I lived on the wet side for a little while. I wasn't really keen on the all the rain, even though it's warm. It's not like Oregon rain, which my kids will tell you all the time. This is cold rain. This state is too yes. cold. Yes. <laughs> so do you think you'll be back there someday? Or? Absolutely. I, I tell people all the time, that is my soul's home. So I will definitely be back one day. But this is where the work has to be done. And so yeah. I'm doing the work. And when the work is done from, from my side, I will happily get on a plane. And I will absolutely, uh. the last time I close my eyes, I hope that I'm in Hawaii. Oh, nice. Yeah. I used to go to Hawaii every year for work and I really I haven't been there for years. I miss it. <laughs> yeah. It was just an incredible place. So you have been doing regular Facebook lives, which is how I first found you. I think somebody shared one of your Facebook lives. That's how I discovered you. And yesterday you talked about the physical beauty of Oregon with its ugly history. Can you talk more about this? Yes. So I love to travel. And especially since we've come to the States, my kids in Hawaii, kids don't travel in the car. It's not not something that you normally do. And so I got super excited when we moved here to, to travel and be in a car for longer than 20 minutes. And so uh, we love uh, rural Oregon, travel a lot to small towns, and oftentimes we're exposed to things that we just don't see up in the Portland metro area. And it's been really educational for my kids, especially right now. And so it just happened that we just came back from Coos Bay 
And while down there, now with all the protesting going on, I really dialed in with some of the leaders. And so there's text messages that'll come through. And I was in Coos Bay and there was an incident there while I was there on vacation. And so it was just dialed in trying to help as, as much as I could. And it just was disappointing, right? Like I'm spending my money in this small town. We love it down there. We always go to this little container home resort. It's so cute. It's on the beach. It's perfect. And just a few miles up, there's like chaos going on, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so my heart sank and I just felt like, I felt like I needed to do something but I also was committed to being on vacation with my kids because I work all the time. So I, I decided that I would hold on to my thoughts, enjoy our time. And when I came back to our home, I decided to share that, you know, one of the challenges that I see in these rural areas is the fact that there were laws that excluded Black people, Indigenous people from certain areas from the entire state. Those laws don't exist anymore, but there are people who want to uphold them regardless. Mm-hmm. And that part is disappointing. It's it's more disappointing when these individuals are people in seats of power and authority. And so they have the ability to do these things, even if it's against the law. And the mindset of so many people of color is, I just can't go there. And all of that just, it hurts my heart because I think these are beautiful places mm. that people just can't go. Like that is just wrong. And so my expression that I was, that I was sharing was, we have to stop this kind of upholding laws that should not exist in small towns even if there's a few people of color you should respect all and at this time we're trying to elevate people of color voices in particular black ones and you too have to do that you don't get to be excluded just because you feel like you only have a few black folks because black folks come through all the time you're on a corridor from California to Canada, they're coming. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to respect all people, all of them. Yeah. I know that you've been involved in some of the protests and there was recently a death against racism event in Clackamas County. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what you've been doing in your home area. Yeah. So the death against racism really came about because I go to a lot of rallies. People ask me to speak a lot. And to be honest with you, I am, I'm not comfortable all the time, right? Like it's a lot of people and I want to be there. I want to be a part of change, but I have kids that rely on me to make an income. I'm a single parent. And so I'm conscious of that all the time. And so I went to some of my buddies that helped me plan things all the time and said, hey, what if we did something in cars, right? What if we like symbolize something around racism that allow the people that won't go to a rally to show up and to speak out but safely. And so I started, they were like, yeah, you know, let us know what you think of, well, we're all about it. So I started to think about it and I thought, you know what, the death of racism is what we want. Why don't we do a funeral procession? Like that would be the safest way. We're all in our own vehicles. SEI is connected with a radio station. We can stay connected through the radio on the ride and see what's going on. And, and it was great. We had over 90, I think we had exactly 96 cars. It was a beautiful turnout. People decorated their cars and we would have traveled through Clackamas County. We went through Happy Valley and Boring and Damascus. And the crazy part was in all of that, we still had people show up that were anti-protesters in their you know, pickup trucks with Confederate flags and screaming at us. And it was unbelievable. It's like, man, y'all spend your day yeah. just looking for this stuff. That's incredible. But even with that showing up, people were supportive. We we stayed together. Um, it was really powerful for me personally because 
and I didn't realize it until the ride, they showed up at a point of the highway on 212 where my oldest daughter one day called me. She was chased by a pickup truck. Oh my God. On that same highway. And they showed up on that highway. And in that moment, I realized, oh my God, this is what happened to her. So it was really cool to to have an opportunity to go against such a, a group in a way that was positive and peaceful. And, and I was able to call my daughter after it was like, you know, I was never able to do anything, but we showed up today. And, and, and then I was able to say that on the radio and share that with people. And it just was, it was a positive, different view of that section of the highway for me that was really powerful. Like you were taking it back in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So how are you feeling in general about the state of the U.S. right now? I just read that Asheville, North Carolina has voted to extend reparations. That happened today. Did you hear that? I did not. Yeah, apparently the city council unanimously voted to, and and who knows what that will look like. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So are you hopeful about the country? Are you hopeful that the trend will continue? Are you feeling discouraged or what's your general sense? So I am probably, I'm all the fairy tale things. I'm a romantic, I'm optimistic. I'm all those things probably to a fault all the time. <laughs> um, so I'm super optimistic. I think that this is an incredible opportunity for a lot of people. There's a lot of folks who are listening. There's a lot of folks who really want to see change. In my theory, in this entire time is there is always an army that's fighting against something that is just not right for us, right? And that army, to me, it grows over time and then it gets smaller. And to me, right now, what's happening is we're gaining more warriors in that army and we won't gain everyone, but the army is getting really big. And so that group is now what, what will face and, and package the future for us. And that's exciting to me, no matter what. I know that there's little things that are happening that really make people upset and uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, this army that we're building of warriors of peace and justice and want to see something different, they are setting up a package for us that could be brilliant for the future. Great. I love that. You know, I was listening to Alicia Garza, you know, the co-founder of uh, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. She's being interviewed by Jonathan Van Ness, who's a great podcast. And he was asking her about like, what about all the, the far right obnoxious people? <laughs> and, you know, well, how can we respond to them? And she said, you know, Every time there is a huge counter movement, that's a really positive thing because it means we're moving towards change. So that's the one thing I keep trying to remind myself as we, it seems like it's getting worse and worse, you know, on the, on, you know, the divisions are getting much starker. I too, am an optimist and it makes me think back to election night 2016 <laughs> Where everybody was optimistic. Oh my gosh. I organized a visit to a suffragette's grave that day that was in the Oregonian. Uh-huh. I was very optimistic. And so we actually had an election night party, and my husband, who's not as optimistic, went into the kitchen as we had people in the living room and he went into the kitchen. He was glued to the TV and he came out. It's like it's not it's like I was optimistic up until probably 10 o'clock that night. What about you? Were you still optimistic? <laughs> no, I actually, I read a couple articles about Hitler years ago that just kind of always resonated with me and the election kind of brought back some of that. It was an article I read about him being this kind of heckler on the corners of Germany and people laughed at him for years and they never really paid him much attention. And then all of a sudden he's the history of Germany. I would say this to people 
all the time. Like, you guys, I know you're laughing. I know you think this is funny. I know you think what he's saying is funny. But you do know that people laughed at Hitler before he actually became the dictator who murdered millions. So let's not laugh so hard that we're blinded. And so I was not really optimistic at that point. I was pretty sure that we weren't going to see this through. And But I didn't know what the outcome would be in terms of, you know, Trump becoming president, like what kind of president. I knew it was going to be complicated because I knew that some of the things that that he generates in people is not, for me, the best of people. And so that part of it, I was not interested in being part of. But I'm totally with the concept. When you have people who are generating anti-protest or just anger or, or having those vocal discussions, that is so powerful because it's much more, it's, it's easier to make a movement out of discussion versus people hiding. And people have been hiding for years. Yes. And so now they're forced to come out. I'd rather know who mm-hmm. you are. Who <laughs> you can trust. Yeah, exactly. It's just more powerful for us. Yeah. So that's one area in your life where you were not always optimistic. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, yeah. I was always kind of clear. I get, definitely get that from my, my father. He was always yeah. like, yeah, so... No, don't trust them. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Well, as, and I'm sure you wanted to be wrong, but yeah, you were right. Yes. Too many examples. Oh my okay. gosh. Yeah, I wish that you were wrong too. So, what mistakes have you made in your life, and what have you learned from them? Lots of them. <laughs> so, I think haste has always been something that has been a challenge for me, and some of that is, you know, growing up in New York City, haste is absolutely not a waste. If you don't move fast enough, you're not going to get what you need. And so haste was something that was pretty normal in my life. It wasn't until I left New York City and moved to rural parts of the world that I realized that haste can be very wasteful and not always get you to what you're looking for or the outcome that you really want. And so I've learned that patience is a lot more effective when you're trying to get a certain outcome. But haste has been the root of most of the mistakes I've made in my life. And I try really hard to back up from that and not rush into anything. Okay, that's a good answer. How do you like to spend your spare time? Do you have any spare time? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I do. I'm an only child. So people are always like, how do you do it? I'm like, I'm an only child. So let's be clear. I have lots of me time. That's important to only children. Yes, <laughs> <have> yes. <laughs> and now you have three children. Yes, <laughs> so. and, and they know too. I'm going to bed, leave me alone. I'm done. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Logging out, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, so spare time for me usually starts every day, every morning. I don't start my day with any body else or anything else without some form of meditation. And it, it takes the form of like an hour and a half. And usually it's really my time to kind of ground myself on where, how am I feeling? What do I feel? And all those things. And that is very important to me every single morning. I'm up at four o'clock and I do that religiously. Then the other parts that are really important to me, which are fun, is I'm still really physical. I've always been an athlete. So I teach spinning three times a week. I run. I like to cycle outside. I like to do lots of outdoor hiking. Anything that's outdoors, especially this time of the year is my favorite. It's amazing. I love activity and doing that. And I'd love to do that by myself, really, because I can zone out. I like my kids with me, but mostly by myself. That's what I do in my spare time. I'm not an athlete, but I like to take walks, you know, Mm -hmm. take my dog for a walk and listen to things. 
things and you know yeah just do it on my own so what are you most proud of in your life oh man every time i say this i cry so i will say excuse me early I am most proud of my kids. I have three incredible children. I'm not a movie watcher, but I tell them all the time, watching them grow is like watching the best movie ever. Because you get to see just all the things that they develop, their idiosyncrasies. I mean, it's just all brilliant to me. And, And watching that, it just makes me super proud to see them. In particular, because I'm a domestic violence survivor. And so I've made some really difficult choices that is that have made their life really difficult for many years and so coming out of that and seeing them thrive now Mm. it just it just makes me feel like okay we're gonna be okay and uh Mm. i'm just super proud of them that's really inspiration this domestic violence that was with your former husband or my former husband as soon as we landed in oregon uh, had an incredibly tragic incident the day we landed we went from a full family to being homeless within (sighs) 24 hours it just was devastating you know you never know how life will twist and turn and change you in ways that are just invaluable now i will say i would never want to rewrite the script exactly like that because there's just so much pain in it but the healing of that what came out of that was my speaking Mm. and i found my voice through the healing of it and so the the best flower in the world is the lotus it grows from the mud and the dirt and the worst conditions but it's the most beautiful flower in the world world. And and I often go back to the thoughts of that flower because my toughest times have really helped me develop into my best self. So you were not as comfortable speaking before all this happened to you? Well, I think years ago I was. As an athlete, I always was. I think that when you're in a DV situation, domestic violence, you lose your voice. You Mm -hmm. lose so much of who you are. You lose your light. So when all that dims, you just don't know how to find it again. And you're so ashamed. And then again, I'm 6'5". From high school, I was a class president. I was the best athlete. I was all those things like, this don't happen to you. So all that made it very difficult for me to use my voice because I was afraid to speak up and shame. Speaking really helped me kind of penetrate that and, and find healing, as well as what I found was when you speak up and you're honest and you're transparent, you help others. Mm. And that was where I was like, whoa, this is incredible. I got to do this more. Well, what a great example for your children too, for them to see you do that, that transformation. How are they feeling about living in Oregon? Do they miss Hawaii or... Oh, we have to hear this every day. Oh, really? Oh, my God. And you moved here for them, really. Right. Sounds like, yeah. Oh, my they don't, God. They don't see it that way, right? They're like, why do we live here? Oh, oh, my God. And how old are they now? So I have a 20-year-old, a 14-year-old, and an 11-year-old. So you're going to be here for a while for the education, yeah, we'll maybe? Be, and, and I'm committed. I mean, with SEI, I, I'm committed for the long haul. Uh-huh. I, I, don't, I, don't, I see myself retiring in Oregon. Oregon, but I see myself, my soul home is still Hawaii. That makes complete sense. What's your go-to comfort food? I've been vegan now for a year. (gasps) Oh, Um, good for you. I know. I, I had some serious medical problems that I just was determined to switch up and, and I was able to do that. Physically, I've lost over 100 pounds, not in oh a year, three years. And then the last part of my physical changes was the eating. And so now my favorite food is I make a lion's mane mushroom kind of crab cake thing. Mm. And it's 
just divine. I love it. It's not actual crab, but like no. using uh -huh. mushroom. Oh, will you send me the exactly. recipe? Yeah, I will. And it actually has the same kind of shredding that oh, crab had. So it has really? the same look to it and, and a very similar taste. And I love it. That's one of my favorites. We're vegetarian with some seafood and I've been using a lot more mushrooms, like wild mushrooms lately. There's something that's really filling about mushrooms. We have the same texture as meat. And exactly. So have the same satisfaction. I actually just purchased just behind my computer is my first lion's mane kind of kit. And so I'm trying to grow my own because I love it that much. Oh. <laughs> and is lion's mane a type of mushroom? Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, I didn't, I've never it heard of that. It's like a lion's mane. It's, really? It's really kind of bold and big and really dense. Okay. I'll have to look into that. What have you read or watched recently that has inspired you? I've been pulling out Howard Zinn's book again, People's History. I read it in college and I had a friend that brought it up to in another forum that she's in about people reading it again. So I really have been kind of dialing into that book. And I really like quotes from people. And so I've been dialing into quotes from him. And he was a really profound speaker. And his thinking just made people kind of shift their lenses in a way that I just find fascinating. So that's what I've been digging into probably the last three months. I love quotes from people too. I've always... I don't know why. I've always loved, loved that. What is one of your superpowers? So I call my daughters superpowers. Really? Initial, yep. Oh. My H1, superpower X, H, and L. It's actually mostly like what I say almost every day. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful message to send to a girl. Yeah, they're it. So they're your superpowers. They are my superpowers. Because <laughs> everything I do is based on like their eyes staring at me, right? Even when I'm the most scared or have the most anxiety about doing something, because we all have that, right? Like, I think I present myself in a very confident way, but every single person has moments where they're like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Uh -huh. And then I turn and I see their eyes and they're looking at me and their confidence in me is like, oh, mom's about to do this. I'm like, okay, we're about to do this. <laughs> And so <laughs> when, when was the last time you remember having anxiety about doing something? Um, yesterday. Yesterday. Right? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm a pretty bold person. Yeah. So thinking of it, it's like I'm bold and it's big and it's this. And then we walk up on it and it's just a split second before it's about to happen. I'm like, whoa, this is really big. <laughs> <laughs> I find the secret to that is not thinking about it diving in and yeah, yeah, yeah not analyzing it and then often your anxiety is worse before when you actually get into it it's not as bad as you think it is oh no never yeah. is I never know. I just had a discussion with my youngest because she's she's a great athlete and she loves skateboarding but skateboarding is a really male dominant thing and we've been going to skate parks and she like stands on the side and she just hesitates I'm like okay let's get you a there's a skate like a girl is a non-profit here in Portland that really focuses on finding strength through your skateboarding and they're doing something some online stuff. So I was like, hey, I want to sign you up for this. And she's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. And she starts crying. And I realized she shares with me, I'm just really scared to go out there. I don't know. You know, it's that, that first like go in thing. And so I shared with her, I said, I get it. And you know, I'm, I feel that every time. But the more you do it, the more you work that muscle, you'll still have that feeling. It's not going to go away, but it just doesn't linger as long. And you're able to go in quicker and you're able to overcome it quicker, but you got to first try. Did she agree to do that then? 
Yeah, that she program? did. She said, okay, I'll get a coach. <sighs> and I said, coaches are what help you do that, right? Like when I play sports, yeah. lots of anxiety. When you play big games, you're like, oh my God, they expect me to make all these points. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Oh, you have all these thoughts. And then you look and the coach is there like, all right, you got this, you got this. And you're like, okay, I got this. And then, and slowly those voices become the dominant voice over that you mm. can't do it. Mm-hmm. And you need that coach to do that. And that's kind of how I convinced her to say, look, just get the coach. You can do this. My youngest son is a really good basketball player, but he's the most gentle soul you can ever imagine. And he really struggled with that. We got him into a, an elite basketball program. He's 13 now. So a few years ago, we got him into this elite basketball program where they were really aggressive and really talented boys, right? And then a lot of the dads on the teams were really aggressive. <laughs> like all this male toxicity going on. Oh my gosh. He really struggled because, I mean, the players were, you know, up several notches, right? From his, you know, school friends. But it was, you know, and I had these conversations with him, like, you know, if you want to play basketball, you got to get in there. You've got to be aggressive. And maybe basketball Basketball's not your sport, you know? Or maybe it's a it's a, it's an, uh, a way to learn something. Because for me, basketball was not going to be the ultimate. I always kind of knew that. But what I learned from it, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate this until much later in life, but now I know. The thing about basketball that's amazing that it teaches you is the ability to pivot. You go down to one side and you shoot the ball, you need to make points, right? If it doesn't go in, you have to immediately, without thinking, without hesitating, go the other way and play a totally different lens, which is defense. And then that's over and you go back and you do it again. And you do this hundreds of times in one game. And this becomes a rhythm, right? So now, if you think about it in life, if you approach a barrier, if you know how to pivot, you're like, oh, no problem. I'll just go this way. Oh, no problem. I'll go this way. Ah. It becomes a skill Mm -hmm. that you build without even thinking about it. That's enlightening. <laughs> I'm going to share that with my son. Yeah, that's, I mean, he he just loves the sport more than anything. I've tried to talk to him about, maybe you should take a track or something less aggressive, but no. He, he really wanted to be an NBA player. I think it's like, unfortunately, you know, I'm five foot, your dad's five nine. Maybe he's like, probably not. Then he started, you know, telling me all the, you know, Spud Webb, you know, all the really short basketball players. Like, yeah. okay, maybe. I don't know. Everything. I know. But it, it, yeah, but it, it is hard if you're not aggressive because yeah. basketball, really, you need to be aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. to really be successful. So I think he's kind of, yeah, I think he's kind of come to the conclusion he's not going to be an NBA player. <laughs> but, but I just want him to enjoy it. That, that's all right. that I care that's about, right? Is. Yeah. So he has yeah. to find a way and to do that. And there's so much that comes out of it. I think there's confidence there's leadership, there's teamwork. I mean, there's so many things that you can oh, use yeah. in anything in life. It doesn't have to be just basketball, but it's cool that he's having fun. Yeah. Tell me about a time recently when you felt great joy. I, I mean, I'm pretty joyful. I, I like to laugh a lot, but um, <laughs> I would say I think it's just waking up. I, I wake up and just feel like, wow, I get to do this again. I'm pretty proud of our life. My daughters and I, we have a pretty comfortable, safe, and warm home. And so waking up for me is is really, really joyful. I'm also very aware of all the privileges that I have because my day is filled with fighting for people who don't have 
And so I consciously really try to be grateful because I know that so many don't. And uh, and there was a point that I didn't either. And so I'm really grateful when I wake up to what I feel I've built. And so it's pretty joyful to look around. I don't know much. It's like, but it's, it's a lot to me. Well, there's nothing like not having something like when you were homeless, I'm sure, mm-hmm. to really make you appreciate. Well, and actually, my, my two boys that live here, my, well, my youngest son really hated school. He really was not. It's like, it broke my heart, but he really wasn't enjoying school. Well, now he actually misses school. (laughs) Right? So, you know, yeah, I think that you'll probably always, you'll never take your home for granted again, right? Never. No, you never (sighs) do. And of course, once you lose something, it always seems different after that. Um, But I just, I think life in general, there's people with poor health. I just, all those things, I'm really conscious of being grateful that every single day. Mm -hmm. Have you been meditating for a long time? You mentioned that you woke up and you meditated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've probably been doing it now religiously for three years. Mm-hmm. But Hawaii, I did it off and on, but it was pretty important to me there. But I felt like Hawaii is a walking meditation to me. Like mm-hmm. I could just be anywhere and be meditating there. <laughs> so yeah. I home. But when I came back to the States, I felt like I had to be more intentional about it. And so um, the last three years, I've been really intentional about it. And I'm a yoga girl, so I do a lot of movement meditation. My day is busy. And so I really am conscious of what that means for my brain and my body. And so I really try to take the time to not be busy and allow that rest. That's really important. If you could think back to yourself at age 21, what would you say to that person now? Never dim your light. Stay bright. That's what I tell my kids now. Because I, I think in, in dimming my light, I realize just how damaging that is for an individual. And so I don't want that for anybody, no matter what. If someone thinks you're too bright, get them some sunglasses. <laughs> don't dim your light. For the last few years, I've been choosing a word of the year or letting it choose me. And my word of the year this year is shine. Yes, yes. Bright. So, <laughs> yes, yes. What is something that you wish people understood about you? I think it's two things. One, my loyalty is just very important to me. And when I give it, I give it with my entire being. And the second thing is I wish people knew just how big my heart is I do a lot of systems work. So a lot of that is heartless, seemingly heartless, but I try to root it in a lot of heart work because the heart of life is really important to me. I'm extremely sensitive. And so when I show up with system stuff and I show up with my confidence, a lot of times people miss that about me Uh until they get to know me. But I wish people knew that more. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do. I don't know. I just had someone tell me the other day that they, and they just met me. So maybe they do. I don't know. But that's important to me. <laughs> I, I found that when you have confidence that sometimes you can be intimidated. I don't mean you, but in general, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I, the same thing with me, that if I come into a place confident that people find that intimidating. Right. And yeah. I'm guessing with your tall stature, yeah. you probably yeah. have that even more so than I do with as a short person. I do. Uh-huh. I do. And I often have to lead with my smile and, and just try to make sure that people know that who I am. I try to show up how I want to be received. But yeah, I'm, I'm often intimidating someone. And then I'm articulate, right? Like, I don't consider myself very stupid. So all those things together don't make it easy for people to receive me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, but, but like, you have you have such a warm personality, though. I'm sure that once yeah. they start hearing you talk, then uh, yeah. yeah, I think that yeah. is fine. Once we right. start talking, right. I think uh, yeah, the initial is yeah. always. Uh, See, uh-huh. I've always admired really tall people like you because you could walk into a room and command respect. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get that when you're five feet tall. <laughs> Trust me. Uh-huh. Well, my, my daddy always told me that if people aren't talking about you, you're not doing anything. He used That's another right. word, though, because he's talking <laughs> about geese. But um, that was always what he used to tell me. So he's like, so show up and show up boldly. I'm like, yeah. okay, got it. Okay, That's good. That's a good message. Kind of like what you're t- teaching your daughters. Yeah. Right. Where can listeners connect with you online? So I'm on Instagram and Facebook. IG on Instagram, I'm B.Tall. So B-E.T-A-L-L. And B.Tall for me is actually an acronym. So uh, the B is as is, but tall is to thrive, to have lots of aspirations in your life, laugh and love. Oh, um, wow. So that's the reason why I use the B tall. And then on Facebook, I'm just B tall Libra. But most people don't realize that my real name is Libra because it says B tall Libra. So they're like, so what's your name? And I'm like, Libra. That's <laughs> B tall. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So my my theme is grit, resilience, and connection. What do these words mean to you? And how can parents or mentors instill grit or resilience in their children or others? Mm, Man, grit is so important. Instilling grit and resilience, to me, the first thing is allowing children to not always be successful, but in their own way, right? So I think a lot of times as a parent, we want to constantly like jump in front and break the fall or stand on the side and make sure they don't fall and do all these things to really protect them. But I find that grit and resilience really comes from providing them guardrails, but allowing them to figure out where the guardrails are and allowing them to potentially maybe fall over and hit the guardrail. Because then when they stand back up, they look at it and they start to assess and make connections in their own mind of what they want and what they don't want. Um, When we're constantly doing that for them, they lose the ability to have real resilience and grit and perseverance, right? Like you got to be able to overcome objectives and challenges because they will come. And if your parents are not there when they come, what are you going to do? Something I say to my kids all the time is, if I die tomorrow, what would you do? And they're asking me, mom, what should I do? Well, if I die tomorrow, what would you do? And at first, when I first started saying it, they were like, what? That's just crazy. No, it's not crazy. Because if I was dead, you could not ask me. Uh So what would you do? And I'll sit and I wait. And again, like I said, I've got patience now. I've lived in Hawaii many years. So I sit (laughs) and I just wait. Tell me when you're ready to answer. (laughs) But that, again, helps them make their own connections in their own mind. At the end of the day, children are here. They're ours in terms of us being family, but they have their own life to live. And we have to allow them to figure that out. You sound like an amazing mom. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. They may not say the same thing. <laughs> I'm sure they would. I'm sure they would, except for when are we going back to Hawaii? Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's do yeah. that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and my final question is, is there a story of grit, resilience, and connection that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Yeah, my family. I have so many stories of just resilience where they had nothing and they were always smiling and they always had hope. And more importantly, like those were, they had direct stories of struggle and 
how they overcame and, you know, how they just improved themselves from nothing. But I think constantly about my ancestors and just the amount of pain and struggle and just sacrifice that they always had to make on a daily basis, like not an option. It was the only way they had to live. And I think about their struggle and fight for people like me in a time where they didn't even know my name, but yet they fought for me. And that is just so empowering to me. It, it literally gets me out of my bed, out of my seat. Whenever I want to complain, I think this ain't nothing compared to what people who fought for me to just be where I am today. Oh, yeah, I can do anything. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Is your family still in New York? My mom is in Philadelphia now. Uh And uh, unfortunately, I've I've lost a lot of my family. Uh Uh, My father passed away six years ago. Uh And so, yeah, it's just my mom and I don't have any siblings. I got some cousins, but they're overseas and they're all over the place. We try to Zoom and stay connected, but my mom will probably never leave the East Coast. Really? (laughs) Uh, Even though her grandchildren are here. (laughs) She's like, yeah. No, I'm staying right. You guys know how to find me. That's just yeah, <laughs> it makes it hard right now when you have parents that live far away. Right. You know, yeah. oh, so hard. Now she moving from Hawaii for her was definitely a challenge because that was like she was there all the time. Oh, I'm coming. Oh. <laughs> But Oregon's not quite so. No, she's not coming to visit here. She's like, I'm not going to Oregon. Be crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. Well, I don't blame her. I mean, yeah. I love Oregon, but yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Well, and by the way, no one on the East Coast calls it Oregon. It's, no. it's Oregon. Oregon. I'm not coming to Oregon, Libra. That's what she tells me. I'm like, <laughs> Okay, got it, mom. <laughs> I know. My husband's from Britain and nobody knows where Oregon is in Britain. Right. So. And of course, I'm sure they say Oregon too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's just been such a pleasure to get to know you, Libra. Thank you for asking me. This is dope. I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Libra. Thank you for joining today and hearing Libra's thoughts about her work and family, leaving her heart on Hawaii, the death of racism, basketball, and losing her voice and finding it again. When I asked her about her superpower, I was surprised to hear her answer, but I love the message it sends to her daughters. Next week, my guest is Jules Peterson, another badass black woman who was born in Harlem and is also mom to three daughters. She moved to the Pacific Northwest as part of her coming out process. She's now happily married to Amy, and she writes and performs around the Portland, Vancouver area. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com.